Good morning, church. If you and I haven't met before, my name is John. Uh, I have been a part of this church family since I was 14 years old. Uh, and my wife and I have been attending here together since we got married 22 years ago in just a couple months. Um, and now my children have grown up here in this church. And so it really is uh, a place that we call home. Uh, we consider this church family to be our family and we are blessed to be here. And I'm excited to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Well, we are in a series right now, as you can see behind me, called The Tale of Two Masters. And this is a three-week-long series. And if you are counting, this is week number three. So this is the final week of this series, because next week we get to celebrate Mission Sunday. And the, the purpose of this series is that we would take a moment to evaluate who is it that is our master. And in this case, we're looking at whether our master is money or whether our master is God. And that, that may actually seem like a little bit of a strange choice. Why is it these two things that we're choosing between? But it was actually Jesus himself who said that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And, and that brought me to, to ask myself this question that I want to pose to all of us here today. And that is, what is it that is the greatest threat to your faith? What is it that, that holds the greatest competition to God in your life? And when I ask that question of myself, I recognize that the, the number one competitor or the greatest threat to my faith is the subtle lure of wealth. You see, money promises us all kinds of things that only God can actually deliver. But if you're like me, and, and you take this moment to reflect, you might recognize that sometimes we're tempted to look to money instead of God for things like security, success, contentment, joy. You know, there are times where I think to myself, if I just, if I just had a little bit more, if I just made a little bit more, then, then I wouldn't have to worry. Then I could relax a little bit. Then I could take my, my family on a, a nice vacation somewhere warm. There, there's so many times where I think to myself, if only I had a little bit more money, that's what would solve my problems. The subtle lure of wealth is often what competes with God for our hearts and our minds. And, and I recognize that some of the attitudes that I have towards money, they stem from my childhood. There's, there's those times in your childhood where, where something happens and it affects you and you kind of make those silent vows to yourself. And I can recall uh, one night in particular where I was up late in my bed, but I was listening as my parents had a, argument about money. And it was one of those arguments where I paid attention. And, and if I sat down with you, I could actually tell you exactly what they were arguing about, who was saying what, what the tone of voice was, because as I listened to them argue about money, I made that silent vow to myself that when I'm a grown up, I am not going to be poor. Because in my house, we didn't have a lot of money and money was a source of tension. And so I determined not only was I not going to be poor when I grew up, but I was going to be super rich. When I was a child and we went to the mall, 
there was two stores that I wanted to visit. Now, I was a kid, so of course, I wanted to go to the toy store. I wanted to see what toys there were. But there was another store that I wanted to go to first every time we went to the mall, and that was the tuxedo shop. <laughs> now, this is the 80s, and so as I approached the window where the mannequins were and the tuxedos were in the, the display, you would see tuxedos with the bow tie and the cummerbund. Anybody know what I'm talking about with the cummerbund? It's not like now where you have the nice vest, but we had the matching cummerbund. I don't even know what the purpose of a cummerbund is. It, maybe it's just to hide your gut a little bit, but the, the cummerbund and the matching bow tie, and they were usually in baby blues or teals, but my favorite was the one that was bright red. Bright red bow tie, bright red cummerbund. And I would imagine myself when I was an adult wearing my tuxedo, with its red bow tie and its red cummerbund, sitting in the back of the limousine that I was going to own, being chauffeured around, sitting in the back while I was watching television. Because apparently, in my mind, that's what rich people do. They ride around in limousines, wearing fancy clothes, and they watch TV all day. And, and it's one of those things, looking back on, that does seem humorous, but yet I still find myself sometimes wishing that I was rich. Wishing that I had just a little bit more. A number of years ago, uh, there was a poll conducted by Gallup. And the question that Gallup wanted to ask people was, how much money do you need to earn in order to be rich? And so they, they started out by asking people who are in a lower income category that made approximately $30,000 a year. Now that would be the equivalent of, of minimum wage here in Alberta, $15 an hour. Works out, if you're working full time, to about $30,000 a year. And they asked people, how much money would you need to make in order to be rich? And those people making about $30,000 a year said $74,000 a year. If I made $74,000 a year, so it was more than double what they were earning, in fact, it was one and a half times what they were earning. They said if they made $74,000 a year, at that point, they would be rich. Well, then they asked those people who are making $50,000 a year, how much would you need to earn in a year in order to be rich? And those people who made $50,000 a year, they said if they made $100,000 a year, then they would be rich. Well, then they went to those people who are in the top income categories and they said, well, how much would you need to have in order to be rich? And those people said, if I had $5 million in assets, then I would be rich. You see, the, the trouble with money is there's never enough. There's never a point in our lives where we could attain enough money and we would say, now, now, now I have it. I don't need any more. I've got enough. I'm satisfied with what I have. That never happens. The trouble is, is that enough is a moving target and it looks different depending on where you're at and what your socioeconomic situation currently is and who the people are around you and where you live in the world. But the reality is for many of us, that the greatest threat to our faith is gonna be that lure of wealth, the promises that money makes, and yet we probably know on some level that only God can deliver on. And now we've been, we've been going through this series for three weeks, so I think if I was to sit down with most of us here, especially if you've been to some of the other weeks, and I were to ask you, are you serving God or are you serving money? I mean, most of us, we would say, oh, I'm, I am. I am offended that you even asked me. I am serving God. I'm not serving money. I'm serving God. 
And, and yet, knowing human nature and reflecting on, on my own acknowledgement of that lure of wealth and a little bit more and recognizing that we often look to money as something that's going to provide us with what we need, the security we want, the peace and the joy that we're after. Recognizing that, I think it's important for us to evaluate what Jesus said to reflect on it and, and to look at it and to try and figure out as followers of Jesus, how do we guard our hearts from making money our master instead of God? How, how do we prevent ourselves from falling into that trap that obviously Jesus thought was worthwhile to tell us about and to warn us about? Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, first of all, I wanna let you know we are super happy that you're here. I'm glad you're here today and I hope that you still get something out of our time together. But if you're here today and you consider yourselves to be a Christian, then I think it's worth the time for us to carefully evaluate what it is that competes with God for number one place in our hearts and in our minds. And so I want us to look at a passage of scripture that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. If you have a Bible or a, a smartphone with a Bible app on it, I'd love for you to turn with me there. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And this, this passage that I'm going to be reading from is part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. And at the very end of his first letter to Timothy, because there's a couple of them that we have, he writes this in verse 17. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Now, I want us to sort of break down uh, these verses and look at them together this morning, starting with the first half of verse 17, which says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. And, and the first thing that this verse brings up for me is, is you'll notice that Paul is telling Timothy to teach rich people. Now, the, the danger for us in hearing something like this is if you and I don't consider ourselves to be rich, then we might be tempted to ignore the advice that Paul's writing here because it doesn't apply to us. And so that begs us to ask the question, who's rich? Am, am I rich? Are you rich? Do you know someone who you think is rich? I think most of us do. Most of us have someone that we look to and we think, man, that guy's rich. When I was a kid, I thought one of my uncles is rich. He lived in a nice house. He had a pretty nice car. At least it was a lot nicer than the cars that we were driving. He had a nice leather jacket that he wore when we were out together and I was with their family. And when we went to a restaurant, he let me order anything that I wanted. He was rich. 
So who's rich? Are you rich? Do you feel, how many, if we were to take a poll and I asked how many people here are rich today? I'm curious, I'm not gonna actually ask you to do it, but I'm, I'm curious how many people here would, would throw up their hands and say, John, I'm rich and I know it. <laughs> See, the, the trouble is, the rich line is also a moving target. It depends a little bit on who you're hanging out with, where you are, what's going on around you in the world, who your friends are, the neighborhood you live in. There's so many factors, but the challenge for us when we're looking at who's rich is we never look down to see who's got less money than us. We only ever look up. We look up to see who might have more money than us. And no matter where we're at, it seems like there's always going to be somebody that has a little more. I mean, have you ever been over to a friend's house? Maybe it's a new place and it's newer and it's nicer and it's bigger than yours. And then you go home to your house and you're like, well, why, why don't we have a house that's like our friends? Our house is big and my house is not nice. <laughs> Maybe you have a friend or a neighbor and they buy a new car and then you're waiting at the bus stop or you get in your old car and you think, why don't I, why don't I have a new car? God, why am I, they're blessed I'm not. Right, the trouble with the rich line, just like the enough line, is they're both moving targets. And, and here the reality is, I'm going to speak some truth today, is that because we live in Canada, the opportunities afforded to us, the standard of living that we expect, the lifestyle that we live is absolutely incomparable to 80% of the rest of the world. And if you begin to look up some of those global statistics, you'll find that there are still 50% of the world that lives on less than $2 a day U.S., 50% of the world. Now, sometimes when I'm having this conversation with people and I talk about the, the global disparity, the absolute incredible wealth that we live in that's so incredible we don't even recognize it, and I bring up a statistic like half the world's population is still living on less than $2 a day, people automatically will come up with something like this. They'll say, yeah, but it's, it's, it costs so much less to live there. It doesn't matter what part of the world you live in. If you go to purchase a vehicle, they don't lower the price drastically in the countries that have less money and the places that have less money than what it costs to purchase a car here. So like when Honda manufactures a new Civic in Japan, they don't decide, well, we're going to sell this for 200 bucks in this place and $25,000 to those Canadians because they don't know what they're doing. That's not how it works. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. It costs about the same to own a vehicle. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. It costs about the same to get on an airplane and fly across to the other side of the world. So if your family was, say, a family of five, and you lived on $2 a day American per person in your family, that would be about $10 U.S. a day. And if you extrapolate that out and you look at what that works out to in an entire year, it's a very small of money, amount of money, and it doesn't matter how low the cost of living in is in some of those places it's still going to be a struggle for you to feed your children. Now, I recognize that there are a lot of people in our own city who are struggling financially. 
I know that there are some of you in this room right now who are going through very difficult times when it comes to money and finances. And and I'm not trying to minimize that in any way. I, I want to acknowledge that today. But what we need to recognize is that by global standards, we are unbelievably wealthy. Even the poorest among us in Canadian society are wealthy by global standards. Because even when we're struggling financially, we can usually find the ability to buy ourselves the occasional treat. We still find the ability to order the occasional pizza or takeout. We still have the ability to sit inside a home that has heat and running water and electricity and and sit back and chill and watch some Netflix. We are so fortunate and so blessed and we, we, we can't even fathom what so many of the people, the vast majority of the people in the world experience on a day-to-day basis in contrast to the unbelievable wealth and blessed situation that we find ourselves in here in Canada. And I say all of that to come back to this passage of scripture where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, instruct those who are rich, that's you and I, not to trust in money, which is so unreliable. Not to be proud, not to place our expectations and our hope in money. And then in the second half of this verse, he says, instead, we are to place our trust in God who richly provides all that we need for our enjoyment. This paints a picture of the God that we serve providing for us, looking after us, and not only meeting our needs, but providing for our ability to enjoy life. So I I was born here in Calgary. I've, I've never lived anywhere else. And God doesn't need me or want me to feel guilty for where I live. I can't control that. I could have been born somewhere else, but this is where I was born. And so... What I'm talking about today isn't about us feeling bad for living where we live or feeling bad for having the things we have. What I'm talking about is a recognition that we should be seeking the God who provides us with all that we need and not seeking money as the source of security and fulfillment and joy. And in this next verse, in this next verse, of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, he gives us some very practical instructions that I want us to pay really close attention to. He says, tell them, that's you and me, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And this... This practical instruction he's giving us here goes beyond just a mindset change where we recognize that we are blessed, that we are blessed to be a blessing and and we are to honor God and to trust in him for our provision. This next verse goes beyond that mindset change and now goes into the practical aspects of actually being willing to give being willing to serve, being, giving, being willing, he says, be ready on all occasions for us to be generous and to give out of what God has blessed us with. 
And this, my friends, is the antidote to greed. It is the antidote to the things that compete for first place in our hearts and in our minds. Because when we are generous, when we give out of what God has given us, we are acknowledging God, everything I have comes from you. And by that act of generosity and that act of giving, we are breaking the grip that money has on our hearts and we are instead releasing it and placing our trust in God. This is the practical application of that mindset change. If I say that I trust in God, then there has to be some kind of action that I then walk that out with in my actual day-to-day life. And what he's talking about here is in our giving and in our generosity, in our serving other people. And there's so many opportunities that we have to do this. I, I can think of, so many occasions where uh, Pastor Ron on a Sunday morning, he would get up and at the end of church, he would say something like this. Why don't you take your neighbor out for a hamburger or for dinner? Right, opportunities to, to bless another family. Maybe the next time you're out at the store, you'll pick up a gift card. You'll think about that single mom that you know that's struggling to make ends meet and you'll give her a gift card to go to the mall or to go to the spa. There are so many ways that we have opportunities to be a blessing to the people around us, to be people who are givers, to be people who are demonstrating actively that our trust is not in money, but it's in God by giving and being generous and by serving those around us. And and maybe what that looks like is maybe you sponsor a child overseas. Maybe it looks like a decision to, to give to the missionaries that our church is supporting, to participate in Mission Sunday and the money that we're raising to help the work that's being done around the world. Maybe for you, it looks like investing in an organization like International Justice Mission that we've partnered with in the past. International Justice Mission is literally freeing people from slavery and bondage all over the world. Incredible organization. Pastor Todd and I had the opportunity to, a number of years ago, to meet with one of their vice presidents. There are so many different places where we can give and sow, including here at Eastside City Church. And I want to encourage you that when those opportunities come up, that instead of closing your heart, that you would open your wallet, which has a direct link to our hearts, and that you would determine that you are going to be generous and you are going to break the grip that money can have on us and instead trust in God. I recognize that that's a lot easier to talk about than sometimes it is to do. Sometimes we acknowledge something like that and we think that is a good idea. But then we start to come up with excuses in our mind as to why we're not going to do that. And I'd like to maybe talk about a couple of them here this morning. One of the excuses that sometimes comes up is we think to ourselves, well, you know, I would give, but I'm not really sure about this organization. You know, that, I heard that the guy that's the president of that organization, I know they're feeding kids overseas, but he makes a big salary. I don't, I'm not going to give. Nope, not going to give. And I heard that this organization spends a lot of money. Yeah, they're doing some good work, but, you know, they spend a lot of money on fundraising. So, ugh. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to give. And well, there was this one time where I was traveling overseas and I met this guy and he was selling this thing and I was talking to him and then he pulled out his phone and his phone was nicer than mine. So, I mean, even though he's from a much poorer country, clearly he doesn't need my help if his phone is nicer than mine. So, ah, I'm not sure how much these people need our help. Anyway, I'm not going to give. 
And, and here's what I want to say very, very clearly. Do not let your skepticism rob you from being obedient to what God's word says. Don't let it. If you want to go and do some research on what missions organizations or what relief organizations spend how much on administration, how much on advertising, and you want to do some research prior to giving, be my guest. Go for it. Knock yourself out. But when God presents an opportunity for us to give, don't let skepticism rob you of being obedient. There's some other excuses that sometimes we like to come up with. I call them the someday excuses. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with someone where they're like, someday, when I'm super rich, I'm going to be so generous. Uh, some of you know, I used to be one of the pastors here at this church. I worked here uh, for about 10 years. And there were so many times where someone came up and they said to me, you know, pastor, someday when I win the lottery, I'm going to knock the socks off this church with my generosity. Just you wait. And, and we can all play the someday game. It might not always relate to something like the lottery, but maybe it sounds something like, you know, uh, once I finally get this other thing looked after, once I've finally been on that dream vacation I've been saving for, then I'll give. Once I finally pay off the car, you know, then I'll give. Uh, once, once I finally get that raise at work, then I'll give. Once I get the new job that I'm hoping for, you know, then I'll give. Someday excuses. And, and here's the truth. If you are generous when you have a little, you're going to be generous when you have a lot. Yeah, Dave Ramsey says that wealth amplifies your personality. If you're a jerk while you're poor, you're just going to be a bigger jerk when you get rich. That's what that means. God is calling us to be faithful now with what we have now. He's not asking for us to someday be generous. He's calling you and I as followers of Jesus to be generous now. And a final note that I want to make on, on this particular area here, this, this final point is that in order for us to be people who are generous and who are walking this out in our day-to-day -day lives, it requires that we have some margin in our finances. It requires us to be intentional about having some leeway in what's coming in the door and what's going out the door where there's margin, there's a difference between what's coming in and what we're spending so that we actually have the ability to be generous and to give. And one of the greatest challenges of our society is that people carry a lot of debt and it absolutely hinders our ability to be generous and to be people who are obedient to the word of God because we're held captive by the debt that we have. I could walk into just about any car dealership in the entire city and walk out with a brand new car. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a bunch of money at the end of every month that I'm wondering what to do with right now. I, I don't. 
I, I, don't, I don't have a bunch of money that I'm wondering at the end of every month. I wonder what I should do with all this money that I have left over. But if I walked into a car dealership, they will make sure that I qualify for whatever loan it is that I need to qualify for at whatever terrible interest rate it is to make sure that they make that sale. And I could walk out with a brand new car. And you might even see me driving my new car. And you might say to yourself, oh man, that John is so blessed. Look at, look at that car that he's driving. Oh, wow. Look at that ride that he's rolling into the parking lot with on Sunday morning. And yet that expensive new car could represent a whole giant pile of debt at a terrible interest rate that now I'm enslaved to that absolutely hurts my, my, my family financially and prevents me from being the kind of generous person that God has called me to be. We got to have margin. We got to be intentional about our budget so that we are able to give, so that we're able to sow seed into God's kingdom. Because the reason that you and I are blessed by God is so that we can be a blessing. You are blessed to be a blessing. The God we serve is providing for you and I so that we can in turn sow seed into his kingdom so that we can be a blessing to those around us. That is the life of generosity that God is calling us to give. And that is what breaks the chains and the bondage that money holds over us. And then in, in this last verse here, in verse 19, listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, by doing this, by being people who are generous, who are serving, who are looking to meet the needs of other people, by being these people that he's called us to be, that he commands us to be. He says, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. It was Jesus himself who said, that when we give, we're storing up treasure in heaven. And last week, Pastor Peter, he talked about how one day, every single one of us is gonna stand before God and we are going to be rewarded for what we did on this earth. We are going to give an account for what we did on this earth. And I think two of the most significant markers of the Christian life is how you treat people, and what you do with your money. It was Jesus himself who said that the greatest commandments were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that the second commandment was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How we treat people and what we do with our money says a lot about what we believe. When I was 14 years old, uh, my parents split up. My dad moved out of our house. And when I was 15, my mom, who is now a single mother working multiple jobs to pay the bills and look after my younger brother and I, she decided that she was going to try and purchase a house on her own. And when she went to the bank, the amount of money that she qualified for was, was relatively small. It, it was... I was discussing it with her this week and we, we weren't sure on the exact number, but it was somewhere between 85 or $90,000, somewhere in there. Now this was 1995. 
And you could buy a house in 1995 for that kind of money, a small, modest place. And so we began looking with a real estate agent and we, we were driving from place to place and we found this little house. It's actually not even that far from here. And, and it was a little bit outside of, of the budget, outside of the range of what my mom was authorized to spend in her mortgage pre-approval. But we fell in love with this little house. It, it had four bedrooms, two up and two that were down in a basement that was developed. And there was a, an elderly couple that had lived there for many years and they had, they had built the house and they had looked after it really well. And so uh, the real estate agent said, well, if this is the house that you wanna try and make an offer on, we'll see if we can negotiate and bring it down into your price range. And they came down a little bit, but not quite enough for my mom to be able to, to buy that house. And the difference between what she could get the mortgage for and, and what they were willing to sell it for was about $5,000. And so the real estate agent, uh, she was driving a real nice brand new BMW. And I'm pretty sure that she had giant payments on it because she was real eager to make this sale. And she said, I'll tell you what, I will lend you the $5,000 in order for you to be able to buy this house. And what she wanted though, was she wanted obviously a lawyer to draw up a contract that would say that my mom owed her this $5,000 that then we were going to use as part of that down payment on the house. The trouble is, is it's illegal for you to borrow money to then turn around and use as a down payment. And so when my mom was talking this over with one of the people that she worked for, they were saying, you know, I don't, I don't think you can do that. You won't be able to get legal paperwork drawn up and then turn around and take that money and use it to, to buy this house with. That's, that, that's not something that you can do. But this gentleman that my mom worked for, she'd worked for for many, many years. She did his bookkeeping. And he said to her, I'll tell you what, I will lend you the $5,000 and there'll be no paperwork involved. And that will allow you to purchase this home for you and your boys. And so he lent her that money and we were able to move into this small home that my mom had purchased on her own. And a few months went by and this this gentleman came back to my mom that had lent her the money, this Christian man who she'd worked for for many years. And he said, I don't want you to pay me back. He said, it's, a, it's not a loan, it's a gift. He said, I have a, a personal policy that I never lend money that I can't afford for someone not to repay me. And in this case, I don't want you to pay me back. Now, $5,000, this is a lot of money now. 1995, $5,000 was a lot of money. And this man used the provision that God had given him to bless a single mom and enabled her to get into a house that she otherwise would not have been able to purchase. And this home became a, a, a place where we entertained, this home became a place where when other kids in the youth group were going through trouble, my mom would bring them and take them into our house and feed them and give them a place to stay that was safe. This home became a place where when one of my young friends returned from the mission field where he'd been for a year and didn't have a place to stay, my mom took him in. The impact of that man's generosity not only affected my family, 
but all of these other people that we were able to bless because of this home. And it's not all, it's not all. When my wife and I got married, that is the same home that my mom was then able to help my wife and I purchase. And when we got married, that's the first home that we lived in as a family. And so this generosity that he demonstrated not only affected my mom, but now affected the next generation. And because of that home ownership, that set my wife up on a diff- my wife and I up on a completely different path financially that has now been a blessing to our children. Church, imagine what your faithfulness can do when we take our eyes off of that rich line, that person that has a little bit more, when we create margin in our life so that we can be people who are generous givers. You and I are blessed so that we can be a blessing. And that blessing that we bestow upon other people can literally impact far greater, far more people than we recognize or realize at the time. And that is the kind of generosity that God is calling us to. And it's the kind of generosity that God himself demonstrates for us when he gave up his own son so that we could have relationship with him through which we are blessed beyond anything that we could own or possess on this earth. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have relationship with almighty God who richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. So would you stand with me as we close today? I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward and I wanna pray for you. Father, this morning, we are so grateful that you love us. We are so grateful, God, for your provision in every area of our lives, but most of all, for relationship with you through Jesus. And I pray, God, as a reflection of your great generosity, that you would give us hearts of generosity. God, that the the tale of two masters would be the tale of us using money as a tool and placing you in first place in our hearts and in our minds. God, we are so blessed to live here in Canada. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to pour out your provision on every person in this place, God, and that we would be faithful to give and to honor you and to be the people of generosity that you've called us to be. We thank you, God, that you care. And for every need represented here today, for every person that's going through a difficult situation or hardship, Father, I ask that you would intervene, that you would go before them, God, that they would see you working on their behalf, that they would see your blessing, your care for them in every area of their lives. We thank you, God. And we look to you today, God. We're so grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name.